Um, this morning, church will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, so you can turn with me there. And uh, if there are any parents that have kids through fifth grade that you'd like to go to Gospel Project, some age-specific teaching, feel free to take them now. Um, the rest of us, as I said, will be in Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1. You can uh, grab a Bible in front of you, under the seat in front of you if you don't have one, and we'll be on page uh, 319 in those Bibles. If you're new with us, uh, our habit here at Church on Mill is uh, every Sunday to work our way passage by passage through a particular book in the Bible, and then to move and start into a different book until we work our way through that one. The reason for this is that the Scriptures are uh, God's Word, and we believe so much that what we need to start another week is to hear from God together, and so this is our habit Last Sunday, we began our fall sermon series through uh, this Old Testament book called uh, Ecclesiastes. And the colossal question this book seeks to answer is found in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That, a church, is the perennial question. It's a way of asking Uh, What lasting benefit is there to being alive? What is life about? Where do you find uh, meaning and enduring joy? What do we get for our accomplishments? Is there anything that makes life worth living? These are the things he's asking. The book of Ecclesiastes is a search for answers to those questions. And so essentially it invites us on a journey on a journey through which we can hear and see the experience of somebody who tried everything the world has to offer in order to find its meaning. Now, as I said last Sunday, uh, this is not an easy book. Um, It is a dark, raw, graphic, difficult passage each week for the next 11 weeks. Uh, This book sugarcoats nothing and provokes thoughts about everything. As we listen, pray, and and talk about it with one another outside this room, our hope, of course, is that by God's grace, as we wrestle with things that sometimes we ignore, but as we really face them, then we can come to find answers to these questions and uh, tackle them head-on, being equipped to live life in this world. The great uh, Pascal... Now, not the chameleon from the movie Tangled, but the uh, 17th century philosopher and mathematician uh, said this. It'll be on the screens. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended to with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Church, deep within each and every one of us is a zeal for our lives to matter, is to know what is to be valued in life, what makes this life worthwhile. There is something innate to human nature that drives us to find a durable lasting joy, a happiness that can't be taken away. 
Ecclesiastes is the search and the personal reflection of one who sought out the answer to that question. You'll notice verse 12 begins with the phrase, I, the preacher. From chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through to chapter 12, verse 8, this is the way the book will talk. It speaks autobiographically. It's because this uh, book doesn't record someone's uh, search for meaning in a, in a controlled environment. This, this wasn't a lab, if you will. Now, this was a real person in the real world trying to find experientially what makes life count. And that makes it a deeply personal, painful, even agonizing experience. It's the diary, if you will, of someone who went on an exhaustive search to find why life matters. In this way, Ecclesiastes is, is the extended reflection of a man who attempted everything to discover why life is important. I think there should be a disclaimer uh, sort of stamped on top of each page of the book of Ecclesiastes that says, don't try this at home. Because what's described for us is the real experiences of somebody who had the ability to attempt the very, quote-unquote, best things the world has to offer, but in the end found each of them lacking. In other words, uh, this book is the recounting of a bunch of terrible experiences. And it's not telling us, now, you go out and try these two. Instead, it's saying, if you'll just listen to me, you can avoid the painful things I went through, and you can find by hearing instead of by scars what makes life matter. You can spare yourself some pain if you'll listen to Ecclesiastes. Now, one question a lot of people have is, well, who is the, the preacher? Who is the I? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? The short answer is, there doesn't seem to be enough evidence within the book to answer that question. Now, I say that because there are two main views on who wrote this book. And just very quickly, the first view, and it's, it's largely the, the historic assumption that people have made, is that Solomon wrote it. Solomon was the third uh, king over the nation of Israel, and uh, biologically speaking, he was David's son. The book is consistent with much of what we know about Solomon from history and from the Scriptures. He may, in fact, have wrote this, so he may be the I of Ecclesiastes. It's also possible, though, that somebody else wrote it. And we say that because if you look closely, never does the book overtly claim to be, to be written by him, and he's never named. That makes this unusual compared to, say, Proverbs, for example, in which he is named. So, who wrote it? Well, it's possible somebody else wrote the book, but they wrote it in such a way that they're speaking with his voice. They're speaking through his experience. And that would have been a certainly acceptable way of writing an account like this. In other words, they could have written in a Solomonic kind of way. 
Whether it was Solomon or somebody similar to Solomon, I want to encourage you, don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. God inspired somebody to write this book, and it has endured because it has lasting significance and was given to us ultimately by God. So whether it was Solomon or somebody else, the Lord has given it to us uh, for our benefit, so don't worry about ultimately who wrote it. I think the fact that it's hard to figure out who is the precise I is intentional. I think it's written that way in order to suck us into the experience because if we had the resources of the person who wrote it, we would do everything the preacher, the, the author, the I did. And in that way, it makes it a bit enigmatic and invites us to, through his eyes, see and feel the same things. Now, one other comment about this. The word preacher is the translation of a Hebrew word called koaleth. Some of your translations may have even retained that word and just used the word koaleth instead of preacher. But it's translated preacher in the ESV because koaleth simply means uh, one who speaks to a gathered group. So one who speaks to a gathered church. Ekklesia is the Greek word or the Greek translation of koaleth. And so what you have pulled together here in all these terms is that this is a book written by somebody who lived it and who, who then is meant to be heard in the hearing of God's people. I'll simply refer to him as uh, the preacher as we go through this series. Now, as the preacher launches into uh, his diary, his experience, which we'll be studying together for the next several months, he does so with sort of a 30,000-foot view first. And in the first couple of paragraphs of this autobiographical section, he's going to say, here's a summary of my experience. And in that way, he describes his whole journey. And then he'll go back through and give us each piece of the journey. So with all that in mind, look with me at verse 12, would you? He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Church, looking back over his quest for meaning, for value, for happiness in life, the preacher apparently reached a haunting uh, conclusion, and he summarizes it there with a proverb in verse 15, what's crooked cannot be made straight, what's lacking cannot be counted. In other words, the preacher found out the hard way that life in this world from a worldly perspective is deeply and irrevocably flawed. It's flawed because things don't work like they're supposed to. This is a fallen, broken, harsh world. People work hard, for example, to buy a, a home, maybe saving up 10 or 15 years to reach a down payment. And then, as, uh, as somebody driving by 
can flick out a cigarette butt, light the grass, the three blades that exist on fire, and burn that house to the ground. The, the world wasn't supposed to work like that. An attractive woman can give herself repeatedly to guy after guy after guy, each of whom who will promise her forever, only to use her and discard her for the next one. It's not supposed to be like that. A crowd of people can get smashed up against a gate waiting for their chance to get on a plane to hopefully get out of Afghanistan, only for someone to pretend they too want out, but whose real motive was to blow over a hundred people to pieces. It's not supposed to be like that. Students can pursue attaining a spot in the popular crowd only to find that once they've reached that spot, they are far lonelier in that group than they ever were alone. It's not supposed to be like that. The preacher's saying, what's crooked, what's busted and messed up in this world cannot be put back together. And he reaches the conclusion that this is an unhappy business to be busy with. Now, I went on then to describe the rest of his journey in a snapshot kind of way. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. Why? For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So it turns out that this person, whoever he was, didn't seek meaning in life only through exotic trips, through lavish possessions, through endless sexual encounters, and through great accomplishments. No, he also pursued what we would call virtue. He, he sought out wisdom and knowledge. Now, ironically, we sit this morning in the shadows of one of the great universities of the United States, if not the world. Students, many of whom are in the room today, students will spend tens of thousands of dollars to get a degree. But the preacher says, looking for knowledge to fix this broken world and make you something is a fool's errand. It's like striving after the wind. That's probably necessary here to say to the freshmen, that doesn't mean you shouldn't study. <laughs> I don't want to hear from lots of mamas come the end of the semester. But why do good things like knowledge and wisdom not fix humanity's emptiness? Why is it that the more you learn and the more wisdom you glean, you don't find those things to be satisfying? Well, friends, it's because knowing more multiplies frustration. Knowing more of what's right and wise doesn't lead to greater joy. It simply multiplies vexation. 
For example, uh, some of us in the room this morning hardly ever read or watch the news. You avoid it because then you don't have to face it. It's like going through life like this, thinking if I don't see something bad, then I'm not responsible to do anything about it. That's what he's saying. Which brings us to the great refrain of the book, of course. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is temporary. Everything under the sun is meaningless. That was his conclusion in a snapshot way to his entire journey. But what about, you might be saying, The preacher says, I tried all these experiences, and I tried wisdom and knowledge, and I found none of them to be uh, lasting and durable. But our, our, our nature then provokes question. Like, I have an objection to that. What about this? And I, the book itself anticipates that. And so as we move into chapter 2, it takes the very real impulse to offer objections and then to tell us all about the things he tried. So chapter one, verse, chapter 2, verse 1 says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourself. If you read through the next 11 verses closely, you'll find... What's littered all through them are words like me, my, I, myself. Those who seek meaning in life through worldly pleasure are inevitably people consumed with themselves. It's like they've gotten a, a self-eating bacteria. If you look for pleasure, then you end up using everything else to try and gain that pleasure. Call it pride or hedonism or debauchery. The pursuit of self-indulgence as the meaning in life is a fool's errand. That's what this section tells us. It doesn't work. But to try to persuade us that that's true, the preacher went through a whole series of experiences. First, he says in verse 3, he tried wine. Maybe I can drink myself into pleasure and peace. None of us have ever tried that, right? Next, he tried accomplishments. He said, I tried to make a name for myself through amassing wealth and through accomplishing things that would allow me to stack success upon success upon success. Look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses. Notice it's plural. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the water, the forest of growing trees. Friends, God made humanity creative and smart, able to accomplish amazing things. And what the preacher did with what he was able to do is remarkable. Now, if you know your Bible well, then perhaps as I read verses 4 and 5 and 6, you heard in them the echoes 
of somewhere else. It's the echoes of the Garden of Eden. You see, he talks about garden and fruit and water and trees. As one commentator put it, the preacher built his own little secular Garden of Eden, full of civilized and uncivilized delights. This man thought, if I could just recreate Eden, then my life would be safe and meaningful. Parents try to do this all the time with their kids. If I can just put them in a a bubble and fill the air in there with joy and happiness and ease, then they'll they'll be safe and they'll have meaning and live great lives. Friends, that is the worst possible thing you could do to a child. Because that that bubble of Eden doesn't exist. You're setting yourself up, you're setting your child up to not be able to handle life in the real world. The preacher tried that. He tried creating another garden of Eden. And then verse 7 says he did things that are not virtuous. He bought slaves and he collected great possessions. He tried the arts, meaning he gathered the best of musicians around him. And then, of course, which none of us would be surprised by, he gave himself no restraints sexually. He had every woman he could ever want. Now, remember the question, is meaning found in pleasure? Friends, This is prompting us to ask ourselves with our own little tiny bit of experience that we have had thus far in life. Is it possible to drink enough alcohol, to amass enough wealth, to collect enough accomplishments, or to have enough sex to arrive at any one of those things as the meaning of life and the definition of happiness. Do those things work? The challenge that we face that the preacher didn't is that we won't ever have the ability to gain as much wealth or to have as many experiences or to sleep with as many people as he did. And so we're tempted to think if I could just get to the next house, the next purchase, the next degree, the next person, then then finally that one would, would cause me to understand that I have finally made it and my life matters. But take it from the words of someone who didn't have the limitations that we do. Look what he says in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This is somebody who could get everything and everyone he wanted. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, 
All was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying, I found this pursuit unsatisfactory. It didn't work. Now, that doesn't mean he, he didn't have moments in which he enjoyed himself, but it means it didn't last. Beloved, I pray that we'll listen to God's Word at this point. Because apart from God, nothing we accomplish, experience, or own will ever really satisfy us. They're not meant to. All that these things provide is a little jolt, a momentary high, a fleeting release of endorphins. That's it. Self-indulgence in all the delights of the world cannot provide meaning, contentment, joy, or happiness. They're not made for that. They're unable to do it. And so with pleasure as a dead end, the preacher then moved on to something more virtuous. He said, pleasure didn't work, so now I'm going to try something everyone would regard as better. I'm going to try wisdom. Verse 13 says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than there is in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. In other words, he's telling us what we all know, It's better to be wise than to be foolish. Your your experiences in life on a whole, the percentage of time things will go well versus badly, your odds are better if you're wise than if you're foolish. But is meaning found in wisdom? Well, he's saying, I I did find one is better than the other. So, studying for an exam is better than not studying for the exam, right? Using the crosswalk when the little person is lit up is better than running across the highway. Being wise, exercising smarts, is better than being stupid. But, but is wisdom where we find lasting happiness? Well, his answer starts in verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head. That's a good one. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. In the modern world, we tend to do all that we can to ignore a particular reality. That reality is we are all going to die. And the cherry on top is not long after you die, you will be forgotten. Friends, one day, some of us sooner, some of us later, but one day, 100% of us 
will be forgotten nobodies. You came back again for this. Even if you somehow freakishly become somebody, famous, wealthy, the kind of person people write books about, guess what? Eventually, there will be other people more famous, and your books on the shelf will get replaced by their books. The percentage of people throughout the history of time who are dead that we have ever heard of is minuscule. On a whole, people live, people die, people are forgotten. Now, especially in the United States of America, we think what matters is what's young. And therefore, we pretend that people don't die. But they keep doing it. And so here's the question this raises. If, if we're all going to die and be forgotten, what difference does it make what we do? do you f- have you ever thought about that? Like that little baby that just cried. What difference does it make what becomes of that child? He or she is just going to die. And while he or she is the most important thing to mom or dad, the rest of the world doesn't care. Why does it matter? Christian or non-Christian, wise or foolish, rich or poor, beautiful or homely, Caucasian or Asian, death is coming for you. You can distract yourself from it. You can take all the naturopathy products you want. You can go vegan and submerge yourselves in essential oils if you'd like. You are going to die. I want to encourage you this morning to really, really think about your mortality. To not stuff it in a corner and pretend it's not going to happen to you. An author said that the reality is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we are pretending doesn't exist. The preacher says, as I look at the fact that I can be really wise and somebody else can be a total idiot, and we can, we can live our lives dramatically differently, we both end up in the same place. We both die we're both forgotten. Who cares? Now, how did he react to that? Well, verse 17 tells us, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher gave himself to the pleasures of the world. 
looking for happiness and meaning and self-indulgence, and he came up empty. And so he turned to what everybody would say is better, gaining education, being smart, applying that in such a way that you become wise. And yet death renders all of that null and void. And so finally, he turned to one more thing. He turned to work. Maybe lasting happiness is the result of hard work. Now, that makes sense. It makes sense because there's nothing quite like finishing a major project or closing a big sale or just reaching uh, 6 p.m. after a long, hard day of work and walking away from your desk with the satisfaction of knowing you applied yourself with all diligence. There's something that feels really good about that. But does work provide a lasting meaning and joy? Are we here for work to be our ultimate happiness? That's the question. Well, let's see what he says about that. Verse 18. So I hated all my toil at which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Can you imagine going on a car ride with this guy? So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his delights are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Is meaning found in work? Well, the preacher saw that even if you work really hard, even if you make a great budget and you actually stick to it, even if you invest well, even if you buy products that are are quality and they last, you do your research, Even if you build a great company and do good for employees and don't invest every dollar on yourself, but save it to pass on to the next generation, you are going to die. And everything you worked so hard for is going to be handed to somebody else. And that somebody else may reject the very principles that you lived with through which they have ended up with what they have. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Death is the great equalizer. Now, as the preacher thought about all this, it literally drove him mad. Who brought the fly? That's going to drive me mad. It, It... It took him up to the very precipice of insanity. Because if he didn't have the pleasures of life, 
And if he didn't have wisdom, and if he didn't have work, what's left? That, that's pretty much everything. If those things can't provide meaning, then he gave himself up to despair. Beloved, what is to be gained by life under the sun? Well, what have we found from this person who had the ability to pursue all those things? Is meaning found in pleasure? Nope. Is meaning found in being wise? No. Is meaning uncovered in work and the wealth it produces? Of course not. Now, at this point, we are meant to feel a measure of the depth of despair that he felt. Because, brothers and sisters, life in a fallen world The fact that somebody would put on 25 pounds of explosives and blow themselves up in order to blow other people up and believe that they're doing something on behalf of God. I mean, have you seen the pictures of the 13 U.S. service members who died? They're just kids. This world is broken. And the very best the world has to offer turns out not to satisfy because it's taken from you when you die. So why bother with life? From the perspective of looking at this world under the sun, it's not hard to understand why people who think deeply sometimes end up killing themselves. The preacher is telling us life apart from God is vanity. Have you noticed that in all of chapter 2 thus far, God has not been named? And in chapter 1, the only time he's named, he's named in frustration. This is deliberate. It's telling us that happiness and meaning cannot be gained in this world. They must come from somewhere else. Now look at me at verse 24. It says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat Drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink and have enjoyment? Huh? At first, this seems to be a ridiculous contradiction. I mean, get what he's just said. You, you, you won't gain meaning through pleasure and wisdom, and work. You can't find happiness there. So, the answer to that is, eat, drink, and work. 
Huh? Even though it may feel like it, there's no incongruity here. In the next three or four minutes, I want to try to persuade you of that, and then we'll be done. We've been asking a question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer the preacher's giving us is absolutely nothing. If you look to this world to provide you with a durable, lasting meaning, joy, happiness, fulfillment, contentment, you will not find it. It's because they're not here. You gain nothing of enduring value through your efforts under the sun. Nobody does. Death takes it all. Meaning cannot be gained. Meaning has to be given. One author I read put it this week, this, uh, this way, life in God's world is a gift, not gain. Do you see how God's actions are the focus of the last couple of verses of chapter 2? The perspective, the perspective switches from life under the sun, meaning looking around at what the world has to offer, to God who is over the sun, what can He give that changes everything? Friends, when our, perspe- when our perspective changes, when our focus is on Him, then a good meal with friends, a nice beverage where each sip is flavored and savored, and each moment of deep enjoyment in work, the very things that cause us to feel our own meaninglessness become the very things that we enjoy when they're seen as being gifts from God. We can enjoy what's under the sun only by knowing the one who's over the sun and seeing that what we have to enjoy has been given to us by Him. It is then and only then that we can stop trying to use the gifts from God as replacements for God, that we are released to enjoy what God gives. He's saying that those who acknowledge God, who submit to God as the sovereign giver, that we will find the fleeting things of this world to be things that we can enjoy because they were never meant to provide happiness and meaning. Those come from God. And once you have those from God, then you can enjoy the things that God gives. Meaning is given, not gained. When you come to see that, then you are freed to enjoy what God gives. A nice home, a a great vacation, a good drink, a new book, sex with your spouse, an evening with friends over an epic meal. Friends, these things are what exist in this world. They are the stuff of life. And you can either use them as little gods seeking to find meaning and joy and fulfillment in them in a way that they don't 
have it. Or you can receive them as gifts from God and locate your sense of identity and meaning and value in Him. If you do that, then you can enjoy what God gives. The only way to enjoy the things of the world is to untether them from the burden of being the means through which you seek meaning and happiness. They cannot stand up under that weight. Meaningness, meaning, happiness, joy, durable peace, these can't be gained. They must be given. And ultimately, the way you find a durable joy is in the one who God ultimately gave. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only Son. It is in the Son where our sins are forgiven and where our life is received that we are then able to enjoy everything else that God gives. C.S. Lewis famously said, all that we call human history... Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery is the long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God which would make him happy. Stop it. Happiness is found in God. When you find it in Him, then you can enjoy all kinds of things that He gives. Would you stand with me and let's pray. God, we tend to look to the gifts of normal life for ultimate meaning, and they don't have it. We pray as a result of what we've heard today that you would help us quit trying to earn what can't be earned and start enjoying the good gifts like work and food and drink. And that happens ultimately only when we come to see the good gift of Jesus Christ through whom we know you. We thank you that in your good providence this morning, Luca was able to share with us that it was only when he really faced death when he contemplated the fact that his life will not last forever. It was only then that he found a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's so interesting to hear a young man say that because we are infatuated today with pretending like death doesn't exist. Thank you for the gift of hearing from Luca today. Thank you for the gift of hearing from Koalath, the preacher. And I pray that my brothers and sisters, when they lay in bed tonight, that they would not be able to sleep until they've thought about this. Meaning cannot be gained. It must be given. In Jesus' name, amen.